Welcome to the Addiction Connection, hosted by my grandpa, Dr. Kurt Devine, and Heather. Is she a doctor? Heather Bell, my two favorite addiction doctors. I hope you enjoy the show. Okay, and welcome back. It's we just, we Tuesday just, again. We just listened to all the kid intros, and now I don't even know what to say except, you know, narwhals and cheese. But yeah, so we are going to have some new intros uh, coming out, and some of them are kind of funny. Very so, funny. Luckily, we got rid of the narwhals and cheese and yes. pizza and ages of us. We're using some new talent, <laughs> <laughs> if you could call it talent. Talent. Um, All right. So today is part three of our perioperative series. There will be four in total. So yeah, I was. You look very confused. Yeah, I was thinking this was two, but it's three. Yes, last week was two, and it was yeah, science. Two. Yep. Science based. This is what. We will call our approach. So the disclaimer is, this is what we do. There is no hard and fast rules. All there is, like we mentioned, I think even very back a couple of weeks ago on the first one, is that this is still a lot of expert consensus. Yeah. And to be clear, the classifications for the procedures we have listed as mild, moderate, and severe should be probably major. Yeah. We've always <laughs> said it listed that way. It's like, what? Yeah, so it'd be mild, moderate, and major procedures. Well, ironically... There's nothing about severe that doesn't, that doesn't fit. But the funny thing is, is a lot of our recommendations fit, you know, what every other expert decided is kind of what the thing is, too, so... It's, ours is a little modified. I know. I was just curious what they called it, and I can't remember. I can't see it on this really ridiculously small piece of paper, so... Yeah, well, I can see it perfectly. Okay. But I'm not and, 40. No, no, I was looking at this chart, and I don't oh. have readers in five different, you know, languages. Yeah. So so the reality is that there's lots of different ways to do this, and ours isn't necessarily the best. But, again, there's a lot of stuff written, and there's just a lot of consensus. So We just feel like we need to hammer that home, that yeah, this, this is, you know, going to make your own guys, research, but you got to do your own research if you're questioning um, if we sound off today, I guess we can mention we did what we did. We did. We did. We had a little fun today with Sam. Sam Quinones, author of Dreamland. And the least of us, we've talked about this in previous yeah. episodes, but man, we met the man, the myth. The Some legend. people said it was the best echo that we'd ever done, the best noon teaching. And Dang, we it didn't only even took talk. Us five years to get there. Yeah, we didn't. That's probably the best part. Yeah. So we facilitated. He's a very interesting guy. He was very. Uh, just a, a really a nice guy and and just agreed to do this. It was fabulous. It was it was just surreal that it even happened. So if you have not read if you have not read uh, Dreamland and The Least of Us, uh, those are his two books uh, that uh, he talked about today and it was uh, it was just amazing. Well, and I think for some of our audience who the audience of this podcast we are at least assuming are students and people who are learning and trying to learn and Reading those books really kind of gives you the perspective on actually what happened, starting with Dreamland through The Least of Us. It really highlights both the, the pill push with all the Oxycontin in the country, paralleling with the, the heroin coming in, and then the book kind of ends, and you're just like, uh, if it was only that easy. The Least yeah. of Us picks over and talks a lot about the meth and fentanyl. fentanyl. And so 
it really does give a good overview. And man, for being a journalist, not a doctor or scientist, he he knows the lingo, man. Well, I thought he knew more than you there for a while. But I think the the greatest part of it. Good thing I labeled those. Yes. But uh, the greatest part, it's it should be mentioned that we don't get any kickbacks from him about talking about his book. Not at all. But uh, we really appreciated him coming on. Right. So anyway, that was a little digression. But we just if we sound funny enough today, it's because, you know, Kurt missed his nap time and (laughs) all of those lost my glasses. (laughs) Okay, so back to these pain classifications. So what we would consider mild would be things like sprains, the mild dental issues, um, small lacerations, which I don't think anybody ever in the universe, well, well. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Actually, we talked about this with good old Sam that some of the weird diagnoses people got opioids for. Foot rash and anxiety. Yeah. So things like sprains, dental, small lacerations really have zero place as diagnoses getting any type of opioid. Yeah. Then you have the moderates, of course. Well, people should think about using what to treat those. <laughs> yeah. You should maybe give some ideas. Like Tylenol. Like ibuprofen. Oh I, I love when people say that. I took ibuprofen. No, it's ibuprofen. There's an F in there. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> sorry, I kind of got off on a tangent. Mm, surprise. Okay. So moderate, minor bone fractures and breaks. I have a story about this, of course. I saw a kid in clinic, this was several, several years ago, who had broken both of the bones in his arm. And then subsequently, like a week later, my own child did that. You remember the names of those bones? (laughs) Are you kidding? The radius and the ulna, thank you. I was just being general. You said it. It's like he broke both of his bones. (laughs) Which is actually three bones. But no, he broke the radius and the ulna, both Emmett and this other patient of mine. And actually, Emmett had broken, what, the, the radius first and then his ulna or something, like a week apart. We didn't even know it. And, I mean, the kid... Are you getting to a point? Yes. You would not even have known he broke them. You know, the second day, the second one, I mean, granted, he had the first one. He he just didn't need anything. And then I had a, a lady who came to the clinic, like, a couple days after that, and she had a hairline fracture to her radius in almost the exact same spot, and you would have thought she was dying. And wanted opioids and, for it. Yeah, and every every person's pain tolerance is different. Right, it just is very interesting, yeah. the span, and I think there's some difference in age, too, in there, but... I think I put a cast on that kid, didn't I? You put a long-arm cast on my kid in, like, June. Yeah, that was cool. And then, of course, we have the majors. Well, we should continue listing the other moderate. Oh, sorry. You know, all I got, to was fractures and breaks. Minor surgical procedures, things like carpal tunnel... But those really, again, we just kind of mentioned not usually needing opioids yet. Um, topical things, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, we should probably say, Tordol. Yeah. You know, and if an opioid is needed, like we're talking maybe a couple days. Yeah, and maybe something like tramadol. Right, or... If that's something Or like a tolerate. hydrocodone product, you know, but just a few days, if anything. We're talking two to three days. Yeah, or just ice. Um, Elevation. Can I finally get to Rice. the majors? Rice. Rice, yeah. <laughs> so the severe things, of course, we're talking the big surgeries. You mean the major? Yes, the majors. It's like being in the majors, you know. I was just going to say that. Things like, uh, you know, you go and you get yourself a, a hip replacement or... Is that you, a choice? 
you go and get yourself one, like you're going to get yourself a, yeah. some wax donuts at the gas station. And then I fell and broke my hip. People that have bigger surgeries, the close cystectomies, appendectomy, maybe a couple days of things, right? So those are potentially patients that might need things that are opioid. Correct. So, so I think that, again, looking for the larger bone fractures, the bigger surgeries. We've had many patients, Suboxone patients, who've had multiple different minor surgeries and done nothing but ibuprofen and playing with the the suboxone like we talked about in the previous episode so the big thing and i think this is where i think in general medicine in certain aspects has been going in certain little clicks and where it probably should go is a lot of this preoperative planning when possible so in this preoperative period you really want to have that coordination with a surgeon to discuss pain management, like setting expectations. Yeah. I think that's huge. Yeah. And I think with the patient, often you have to have that conversation with the patient that there's going to be some discomfort and we're not going to take it all the way. It's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be okay. And you can, you can get through this. I know you can, right? You have to charge them up. You can do this. You can do this. Um, I don't know. These are all patients already on buprenorphine. I was confused for a minute. Yeah. So if they, if they were on buprenorphine, it's like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, and sometimes surgeons, I mean, especially surgeons currently, they weren't in training when buprenorphine and suboxone was a thing yet. You know, it's, it's more of a newer thing. So yeah, your younger surgeons, your brand new surgeons might have a lot more comfort with it, but got to understand that a lot of the people who do these big surgeries just never had the training with it. And so it's okay and should be done to not be intimidated by the orthopod and actually call them as the buprenorphine provider and be like, hey, you know, let's have this discussion. Here, here's what we can help you with. Um, yeah, and so if you're a buprenorphine provider, you, you need to be able to answer these questions. Right. And so it's important that if you have a patient that's on it, that you know how you're going to manage them. One and- place is if, if you are the primary provider as well or if you're doing a, an HMP on a patient or the pre-op um, HMP and, you know, cardiac clearance thing is to put those buprenorphine instructions very clearly in there. I recommend not only doing them in the assessment plan part of the very, very bottom of the note, but also I would copy and paste it to the very top and make it red <laughs> just so then it can't be missed because really nursing needs to be aware of this. Anesthesia really needs to be aware of this because I think there's a lot of stigma that patients Ugh. feel. Yes. I mean, yesterday I had a horrible patient case with an oral surgeon and just total misunderstanding or total lack of well, knowledge on their yeah. part of basically telling her that even though she's been in recovery for six years, buprenorphine is the same as fentanyl. And yeah, I think we often get that where physicians will say to patients, you really should get off. You know, they'll give them advice about the buprenorphine, but yet they they don't have any experience with it or really understand it. And I think that's where education is just such a huge thing for us to educate these providers who don't prescribe it. Right. And I think I mentioned anesthesia a second ago, but I think a lot of anesthesiologists or anesthetists are starting to get trained in different pain strategies and like tap blocks and other nerve block type things. And we'll kind of get to some of that in a minute. And that's why I think it's really important to make sure they find out Sometimes you'll get an anesthesia person who gets nervous. Well, I can't give you this because you're on this. Okay, my theory on that is when an anesthesiologist is really worried about giving somebody, whether it's 
like a benzo, like a Versed or a or fentanyl while they're on their Suboxone that something's going to happen. Well, yeah, they're in an operating room, like, you know. That's why they're sedated. there. Sedated. That is your job. Like, there's put, a reason we innovate don't. Innovate them. Like, there's, there's a reason we don't do this in garages. Correct. Anyway, yeah. sorry, that's and, always weird to me. And I think it's important too for people to understand that, you know, for the most part, we talk about benzos and opioids and how that interaction is a problem. Less of an issue with the buprenorphine. Correct. Clearly, you want to be careful. But if you're in an operating room and those things are required, you just have to monitor the patient. That's what your job is. So, right. If that's what patient needs to like have a sense of calm, peace, not yep. be super anxious, you <laughs> please yeah. treat the patient the same you treat anybody else. Yep. Okay. So the intraoperative period? Yeah. Different things. IV, ketamine, lidocaine, other forms of local. Um, you know, these are the tap blocks. Other things you can do in, you know, like the more specific, just, oh my gosh, specific area. Yeah, and using the long acting, the things like the Marcane, things like that often you can inject after the surgery that'll give, you know, that tissue destruction or injury is where it gives you, what gives you most of that pain for that first couple of days, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's really trying to give them as much time that where they have some relief. Right. You know, and we'll talk about this coming up in the next episode, but things, you know, like you just mentioned, the long acting, but peripheral nerve catheters, keep that nerve, especially if the patient's going to be inpatient, you know, they have a major knee replacement. Anesthesia can come by and do nerve blocks subsequent days. Um, Expiril is a great option. Tap blocks if it's an abdominal surgery. A lot of C-sections, now they do tap blocks regardless and do some tordal. I didn't need any pain meds after my second C-section because they did those things versus my first one. So these are very helpful things. Yeah. So are we talking about general pain management for patients on buprenorphine? Is that what so. we're talking I think, about? I think, I think that's where we're at. To be clear, Dr. Bell was not on Suboxone when she had her C-sections. The way correct. you said it. Yeah. Oh, yes, correct. It's. I was going to clarify that. Oh, yeah. No, but I'm just, it's also that point, though, that I'm not on Suboxone, so I didn't have that baseline, even a little bit of yep. pain relief from that. But things like that are very helpful, yep. was so as, my point. But, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so as we tell you, so as we talked about this, again, we don't discontinue the buprenorphine. It's not uh, really the option that we feel is the best. And We talked about that in previous episodes, yep, just that, that risk. We did. Um, but there are ways that we can adjust the dosing to make it help the pain a little bit more. Take advantage of it. It's an opioid, you know, partial agonist, but it does have some analgesic properties. So, you know, splitting it, if they're take, taking it once a day or twice a day, increasing it to two, three, four times a day may even be the same dose. So 16 milligrams, you'd split that into four milligram dosing. So cutting or splitting your tablets or films, taking it more frequently, same total daily dose might get much more pain relief than just taking it the twice a day. Yeah, plus mix it up. You know, mix it up with the with the NSAIDs, mix it up with a little gabapentin, Lyrica even. Mm -hmm. You know, there's different ways that you can approach their discomfort, again, depending on the type of surgery. Correct. And, you know, sometimes, and I don't know if this is coming up, but I think we just mentioned the QID dosing, so I'm going to throw it in there now. Oh, nope, it's coming up. But I think we go there now, actually. I'm gonna go skip. there. I'm going to skip to it. If it's a bigger surgery, and I just kind of said if they were on 16 milligrams, keep it 16 milligram total daily dose, just split it up. Another option, which I do probably the most frequently, especially major oral surgeries. Um, I've had a lot of patients have surgery at this point, even orthopedic type things. 
increasing that total daily dose. So from 16 up to 24 milligrams total daily dose and then splitting that up. Um, they tend to do much better with that. Yeah. And how long do you leave it up there? I typically write a month for it just so then patients don't get anxious about running out. Most of them, it's only a couple of weeks and they go back to the 16 milligram total daily dose. Yeah. So. I've done that a few times where I, I'll might taper down over a couple of weeks after bumping it up, like on a big knee surgery or something like that. Uh, and so be creative. Again, I don't think there's any hard and fast rules here. Correct. And I think that some of what we've done has been based on what we've reviewed of different things. And some of it is just each patient's different. Right. And again, it's, you know, that seems like a big dose jump. It is, <laughs> but it's not, it's a safe medication. You know, there is that ceiling effect. This is why we use this med. And if you can take advantage of that property of buprenorphine to get that pain relief, increasing the doses, not increasing their risk of having respiratory depression. Significantly. Correct. So if they do need high, other things, if their pain is just surpasses what, you know, the, the higher dose of buprenorphine can do, you know, there's definitely ways to kind of take advantage of, like we had talked about in different episodes about the few mu receptors that still have some availability and opening. Yeah. Are you lost? I was lost. You kind of were flipping all no, over. Oh, you're found? You were flipping out. Um, and I think one of the other things to remember, and we've talked about this in other episodes, is avoiding those long-acting opioids uh, to start with. If you're going to use something, it should be the shorter-acting things that that are maybe more likely to, to have a really strong you know, attraction affinity to, for the mu receptor. But remember, long-acting and, and really regardless of other things, the long acting are still more commonly associated with overdose and, right. uh, and problems. So we avoid those. Yeah. So kind of to, to mention the few opioids that I would consider my first choice that have that higher affinity would be, you know, fentanyl if they're inpatient. Yep. It is okay to give fentanyl to a patient with buprenorphine. That is, I think the biggest misconception among surgeons and anesthesia. Um, Dilaudid, which I had never prescribed Dilaudid in my entire life until until this until this um, and and oxycodone and the question is always well how much my first question is always to the surgeon how much would you give a patient who's totally opioid naive or a patient who's not on opioids knowing what an average you know a typical quote unquote patient would be who is not on opioids can really help kind of guide what you you know you do and I typically double it. You know, if they're going to get some, you know, oxycodone, 10 milligrams, four times a day, which is a lot, you know, do you increase that to 24 times a day or do you kind of cut, split the difference? Yeah, I, um, I usually split the difference and I'm also looking at how big of the, you know, how big a surgery. Right. And, and then I, like you, I typically, I might do oxy for a number of days and then I might, depending on the surgery, I might give hydrocodone for a day or two more and then be done. Yeah, just... I, t I typically don't mess around with multiple. I mean, I, that's no. just the way I do it. I don't, I wouldn't go from oxy to hydrocodone to down just because that's a lot of extra work. <laughs> but um, the other thing I found super duper helpful when you're talking with surgeons and trying to figure this out is you have that conversation. What would you normally give them? Here's what I would recommend. However, here's your second option, your, your door to do a doctor, surgeon, so-and-so. You handle them inpatient. Once you've discharged them, here's what I would recommend discharging them with. I will then take over all the pain management from there. So if in a week their pain is worse, 
let them call me instead of you. Or every surgeon I've ever told that to thinks I am amazing because no one wants to deal with pain anymore because it's so afraid and so, you know, and I get that. And so I'll just kind of take that over. I don't know at what point you take the pain management over. I usually take it over uh, right after release. Yeah, I actually just had a woman who had foot surgery, and I, he sent, sent her home with some, and then after that was gone, I, I did the rest of the taper. And I actually bumped up her bube. Mm-hmm. So did well. Actually, I was just thinking as you were talking, I should call her. <laughs> like, you had this weird lost look on your face. Yeah, I was like, like hmm. what are you thinking? Because you look like you're in a different world. I was world. like, man, I think I should call her and check because things were going great and I didn't hear anything. So I'm assuming it's going well. All right. So and, again, this was our approach. I'm not saying everybody needs to call in everybody's post-op pain meds. I'm not saying everybody needs to, to love it, but you have to be aware of it. If you are doing Suboxone or buprenorphine products, this will happen. You will have a patient, have trauma, have surgery. And you will need to deal with it. Um, yeah, I think the worst. you can always just call or email us for advice or help in the moment if you want. Um, so Yeah, I think it's very important that if you're going to prescribe buprenorphine, you know what to do with it in different situations. Right. Because people are going to call you. Other providers are going to call you. And then how to respond if a provider tells a patient to pay. That's usually where I hear from it is the patient will call me at the addiction clinic and say, my doctor said I can't have surgery, da 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 Ah, they want me to sign my suboxone, and then I kind of got to go backdoor through it. But if you're, every once in a while, ask a patient, especially a new person in recovery, any kind of surgeries on the horizon, any kind of dental work, or, hey, by the way, a topic that might come up in your life is surgery. Like, let me just say, please never stop your meds. Tell the surgeon you're on the meds. And I will work with the surgeon. So sometimes just telling the patient that ahead of time and then they're aware can take away their anxiety because they are very anxious about surgery. Yeah. I have one other thing to say. Okay. One thing to really keep in mind is if you are kind of taking care of patients as they kind of do the post-op thing, if they have a sudden change in their pain, then that's not your issue. You need to send them back. So I think just keep that in mind. If, If there's a sudden change in how their pain was, then you should not be readjusting their meds. Somebody should see them. Great point. Yep. Yeah. And yeah, you don't, in the post-op complications happen. So I've, it's important yeah. to kind of keep the surgeon in the loop still there too. Yeah. I've had that Good a couple of times where something got infected and all of a sudden they're having all this pain and it's like, it's swelled more. It's like, well, yeah, no, I'm not no, touching back that to your surgeon. <laughs> all right. So yes, if you have any questions on any of this or you come across things, we also have a lot of paperwork to go with this. We have, pre-written letters actually for the mild, moderate, severe slash major surgeries that as a buprenorphine provider, we can fill out and just send to the surgeon. So they're already pre-written. If anybody wants any of that or just some of this information, um, you can email us at the addiction connection podcast at Gmail. And a lot of people take those and then adjust them for their own use. Correct. So with that, we'll be back one more week to talk about some of the nuanced patients that may come up perioperatively. This podcast is brought to you by Ars Longa Media. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and music by Battle Eggs on Spotify. I saw her today at the reception A glass of wine in her hand I knew she was gonna meet her connection At her feet was a footloose man You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes
you might find you get what you need. You get what you need. Demonstration to get my fair share of abuse. Singing, we're gonna vent our frustration. If we don't, we're gonna blow a 50 amp fuse. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. You can't always get what you want. If you try sometimes, you might find. You get what you need You get what you need I went down to the Chelsea drugstore To get your prescription filled I was standing in line with Mr. Jimmy And man, did he look pretty ill We decided that we would have a soda My favorite flavor, cherry red I sung my song to Mr. Jimmy And he said one word to me and that was dead You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want But you try sometimes, you just might find You get what you need You get what you need In her class was a bleeding man She was practiced in the art of deception I could tell by her bloodstained hands You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want Yeah, you can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes, you might find You get what you need what you need You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want You can't always get what you want If you try sometimes You just might find You get what you need You get what you need